0: All right, so we're going to pick up uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits and cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Jebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So, first one, it, we get this list, list of disciples. It looks a little similar to, um, to what we saw when he gave them power over unclean spirits, he cast them out, heal all kinds of sickness. It looks really similar to chapter 935. Uh, where that's what Jesus was doing. So we see, as we move into this new section, so far we've established Jesus is the legitimate uh, heir to the throne, as we saw in chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, and chapter 3, that, that Jesus is, uh, has the makings of Messiah. Then in chapters 5 through 7, he gives a Sermon on the Mount, and he outlines this is what the new kingdom looks like. So if Jesus is king, and this is what the new kingdom looks like. Then in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus, you know, the way Matthew is structured it is this kind of theme of king in the first section here. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he goes out and exhibits through power over all these things that we see in chapter 1 that legitimizes the claims that he's made and legitimizes the outline that he's made in cha- in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is setting up a kingdom where there has to be a, there's a structure in the kingdom. There are administers of the kingdom. There are, so theme number two as we're moving into it here is this is how Jesus is going to take his kingdom as king and administer it through his disciples and through his, what we're going to see here is our, our apostles. And that there are people in the kingdom that do different things. And this, this first group that he calls, this 12, has been a group of people that have been called out of the multitudes. Ma- Matthew 9, 36, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, Truly the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers in his harvest. He pulls aside these disciples, these people that got in the boat with him, Right? the people that are willing to answer the call and the things of this world aren't getting in the way for them, they need to be laborers. So what we see in chapter 10 is Jesus is going to set up how to be a laborer in his kingdom, which is absolutely applicable to how we live our lives and how we do things. Um, and the first thing he asks him to do in verse 38 of chapter 9 is start to pray about this. So before we do anything in the kingdom, Jesus has his own disciples start to pray, even though he's right there. And you'd say, well, why, does he, why do they need to pray? Why don't they just like talk to Jesus? And, and, and we get back to kind of one of those big principles of prayer. Prayer is not to change God. Prayer is to change us. So when Jesus sees a need in the kingdom, the, the harvest is plentiful, but I don't have enough people to go out and do this. He asks his people to start praying about it because it changes us when we ask that God to do things that are within God's will. We start to align with it. Not only that, but if you're praying about it, you start to form a, a vision for how to do it, right? And then it, it occurs to you, maybe I'm the one that should be out doing these things. So you get that kind of the, the way in which Jesus brings people in is oftentimes to see the need is the first step. When we bring that need to the Lord, it's the first step in maybe saying, well, maybe we should do it. So you go, you go to a church and they don't have you know a, a youth center. Well, start praying about it. And it might be that the Lord starts to open doors for you to start organizing that. So instead of putting that need on other people, we say, okay, maybe this is an area God's calling me to serve in. So notice that then in chapter 10, after praying about it, he calls his 12 disciples to him. So they draw closer to Jesus and then he gives them power to do the things he's asked them to do. And in this case, the harvest has to do with the things Jesus has already modeled for them in chapter eight and nine. He does all these miracles. Now he's going to empower his, his apostles to do the same kinds of miracles to get the attention and to point people to Jesus. And it's not about them. The rest of this chapter is going to be like, it, we don't want you, this isn't about you standing out and you making a bunch of money or you being the center of attention. It's about you preparing the way for the king, just like John the Baptist did. So in verse five, he, he's going to send them out, and, and we see this process. You pray, you get close to Jesus you're empowered to do a thing in the kingdom and in the body and then you go out and you do it and and so Jesus is expanding the ministry here and in that in the incarnate form of himself he can't get out to all these towns and it will save an enormous amount of time if people go into the town first and say Jesus is coming and they repeat what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount to get people coming, and then the crowd is waiting when Jesus gets to the town. And and this is a key part of like the calling of Messiah. He's going to go to every town in Israel and preach generally what he preached in chapters 5 through 7, which again is why I think that we have a pretty accurate account of what was taught in that teaching, because it's the kind of the opening salvo for Jesus' ministry, and he would have done it multiple times. So The disciples are going to go into a town, Jesus is going to follow behind when the crowds are ready to go, and then when he's done with his teaching, he's going to go right to the next town where another set of disciples have already got things ready to go, and it's efficient. This is kind of like, a, a, um, you know, they used to call them whistle-stop tours in American politics where the candidate would get on a train, and the train would just stop at each station, and the candidate would kind of give his speech off the back of the train. Well, somebody had to go ahead into each of those towns to make sure that the audience was there for when the train pulled in with the candidate. So as Jesus is, is moving throughout Israel here, he's sending them out to kind of expand that ministry and get things going. So um, that's where we're headed. The disciples, interesting kind of flipping terms here. We have the multitude, people willing to hear Jesus. Then we have the disciples, people willing to learn from Jesus, that when he goes up on the mountain, they come and follow right? So that's a smaller group. But now we get a different name, which is called apostles, one who is sent out. So a disciple in the Greek is a learner, somebody who learns from Jesus. And now we have apostles, somebody who's sent out or, or doing work on behalf of Jesus. This is going to be a smaller group. It's so small, we're down to 12 now. We went from multitude to disciples to 12. And the apostles being sent out, 12 not an insignificant number. Again, Matthew's writing to a Jew, Jewish audience, so when he picks the number 12, that says something to Jewish people. Uh, 12 is the number of government or of earth being administered by God, God's plan for earth, three times four. God is the number of three, and then earth is the number four. So when you have three times four, that number equals God's plan for administering his will on earth. And, 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 and they get that out of a history of, of uh, gematria or number usage in the Bible. Either way, we see that in Matthew because it's relevant to the Jewish people. And it's how, part of how Matthew communicates to the Jewish people. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are the elders of the 12 tribes. There happens to be 12 of those. So when they administer God's plan in the Old Testament, it happens through these this, this 12 groups of people or 12 divisions. There are 12 pillars at the altar in Exodus 24-4 for Moses. And the altar and the plan of the Mosaic priesthood is part of how God administered on earth. Uh, the breastplate of the high priest has 12 stones in it, Exodus 28, 11. The bread and the tabernacle, how God relates to humanity, Leviticus 24, 5, 12. There's 12 rods, there's 12 spies that go into the land. It goes on and on and on. So you can do a whole study on the number 12. Uh, point being here, it's not insignificant when Jesus is establishing a new kingdom and he's a new king that there's a new governing body to oversee God's plan on earth. And when this number 12 gets used here, it would be just as offensive to the Pharisees as Jesus calling himself Messiah. Um, So Jesus doesn't send everybody to do this, but he does say some. So that's another thought here. The disciples, the people learning from Jesus, that's a wonderful thing and it's a beautiful thing. But not everyone is sent out in this particular role. God chooses and selects people to do parts of the work. I think in the, in later on, you know, Paul talks about that there's parts to the body, right? And not everybody in the body does the same thing. And we see that principle taking root here um, in the same way that the Levites were called to be priests, but all of Israel was God's chosen nation. It's not a less than situation, um, but it is an honor uh, to be able to serve God in the ministry to get the harvest and to bring that harvest in. So Another thought of this list that he has of these disciples. <laughs> there's whole studies of, like, there's wonderful books on the personalities of all the disciples. Like, it's like a giant Myers-Briggs uh, um, spectrum of personalities here um, that we get uh, various amounts of detail on various disciples. Like Thaddeus, we really don't hear much about him at all, uh, leading to the idea that he maybe was pretty introverted and, and kind of quiet and a supporter or a prayer of the other disciples, an encourager. Um but we do know this about this list of disciples: that not many of them are wise after the flesh, and not many are mighty, and not many are noble. Are called First Corinthians one twenty six. God doesn't call the prominent people that the world has established as doers, as as um, influencers. God doesn't—fishermen in the first century are not influencers, right? So tax collectors are not people that are going to connect with the Jewish population. Zealots are not people that are going to connect with the Gentile Romans. He selects people on this list that actually hate each other, right? So really the only two people on this list that have any kind of extensive education beyond like the normal elementary primary school kind of education would be Matthew and Judas, right? Matthew, a tax collector, and, and Judas Iscariot means man of the city, or it could be someone from the city of Carriot. Um, but either way, Judas would be somebody from the cultured city. It's like saying Judas, Judas from New York, you know, or Judas, you know, Judas from the big city, uh, and Matthew, the tax collector. So those are only two people that maybe have some sort of level of higher education. Uh, the core here is, though, that they're all disciples. Uh, you can't be an apostle unless you're a disciple. You can be a disciple without being an apostle, but you have to be a learner first. You have to come to Jesus first, uh, verse 1. Before you can go out and represent Jesus, you actually have to have Jesus talking to you. So that we, it's much like the list of that we see throughout the Bible where we see these people being highlighted that wouldn't otherwise, outside of God's plan, God's will, and God's power, they wouldn't be highlighted, right? So we see him doing it again it's the character of God to take the weak things of this world and make them and, and make them glorious in the kingdom but we, so there's a diverse group of people here it gets broken down in different different ways the list of disciples is in mark 3 Luke 6 and acts 1 you see so there's four lists of disciples in every one of those lists um, there are there are 12 uh, and they they are in you know could be, Clustered a lot of commentators say they're clustered in groups of four because then you get the three times four uh, number that works in this particular list if I just read it at face value it looks to me the way the sentence structured is that they're grouped in twos and Part of that is mark six seven. He called the disciples uh, um, the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave power over unclean spirits so two and two could be he sent them out in groups of four or he sent them out in groups of two, and and depending on how you read Mark 6, the way Matthew's structured is, it sounds like he's got teams of two that are being sent out. So Peter always being first in all four of these lists, Judas is always last in all four of these lists, Judas always has the qualifier, the one who betrayed Jesus, in all of these lists, Um, and we have some name changes that happen. So we get Peter and Andrew always getting paired, James and John always getting paired, uh, they were brothers, they probably were close and they were connected in that sense. Um, we get Simon whose name means shifting sand, uh, also called Peter the Rock, uh, implying that this has been written after Peter takes leadership of the church, right? And it's written after Judas betrays Jesus. So we have Andrew being kind of an inviter personality, uh, James and John, the sons of Thunder, the Thunder Boys, uh, Benageries,, um, Later on, John kind of becomes the disciple of love, right? So there's character changes that happen through these names. Um, there's a church tradition here that that uh, James and John uh, would have been cousins of Jesus. Again, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it does, a, a lot of early church tradition has that being the case. Uh, the link being that the belief that Salome and Mary were actually sisters, uh, and if you want to get into that, you can. It, it doesn't really change the meaning of our text today, so I'm not going to get too far into it. Philip's always listed fifth. James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed ninth. The same three guys are with those two, um, which is, again, where you get this image of groups of four being set up. Um, but the Bible doesn't focus on the people, and, and it, it, it really focuses on the work, not the worker. So we don't see a lot of detail around some of these disciples, frankly, because it's not that important. Jesus could choose anyone and call them forth and send them out. A uh, couple things so we don't stumble on these things. Uh, it says Simon there, the Cana-ite, um, Cana- Canaanite. Notice there's not two A's in there. It's not Canaan the pagan. Uh, is, so all of the disciples are Jews. Um, it, it, the Canaanite implies more that he's from the city of Cana. Um, and Simon is in other gospels called Simon the Zealot, um, who s- somebody, the thing with a zealot is the zealot group of people would train to kill Romans and kill those that served Rome. That was their mission. And they did it through intrigue. They did it through assassinations. Uh, but their goal was to help, uh, help the, he- the Hebrews to regain their nation. Uh, so they were definitely uh, Zionists in that sense. Uh, but they did it through violence and guerrilla warfare, and they, they um, were trained to do that. So when they say Simon the Zealot, it means he came out of this community of people that were so de- dedicated to that politic uh, that they are willing to kill for it. Um, and then you also have Matthew on the other side of that equation, which is somebody that Simon would have been trained to kill. So in any other context other than the church, other than Jesus' disciples, these two guys would have been like, it would have been a death match. Um, and Simon would have likely won that death match. But either way, when Jesus calls people together from absolutely opposing sides of the political spectrum, he tells them to love one another. Because if a zealot can love a tax collector, God's got to be involved. They're, they're in a different kingdom when that happens. You know Christians by how they love, and in part it's by how we love others. So literally asking Simon and Matthew to get along is to say, love your enemies, because you're both following the king. Set aside your concerns about this kingdom on earth and put your concern in the kingdom of heaven. And this is all he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So here he's got these two followers. Notice that they're, they're, um, they're going to travel together and be together in this particular case, Um, they are not in the same group of four or in the same group of two. So there's some wisdom around keeping some distance there, too. Um, Either way, you've got this really diverse group of disciples. We won't get too much further into it. Um, I do want to focus just a little more on Matthew, because, we again, he's the writer of this gospel. Uh, This is where we should kind of do this. But notably, we see some of these disciples having a family connection, Uh, most notably James, the son of Alphaeus, as though... When Matthew writes that, he's expecting the readers know who Alphaeus is because that's what defines James. And that there's other Jameses, and that's a common name. So to make it an uncommon so we know the individual, he says, son of Alphaeus, which would imply that there aren't multiple Alphaeuses walking around. That in saying that, we know who this person is. Well, in Mark 2, verse 14, he calls Matthew by his new name, Levi, and he says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Well, people trip up on that because they say, well, that's an inconsistency. It's not an inconsistency. Just like Simon is called Peter and we have in, in you know, Matthew, he does the same thing with Thaddeus, uh, Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. He's trying to like point out the fact that these, that Jesus gave nicknames and when we're new in Christ, sometimes that name changes too. Saul's name changes to Paul. So it's not an inconsistency when you they're both accurate names right? But what we see in this difference between Matthew and Mark's list is that if Alphaeus is a distinctive character, then you have James, the son of Alphaeus, and you have Levi or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. So it's interesting here, when Matthew became a text collector, by default, his Jewish family would have disowned him, especially if his Jewish family is looking for Messiah and is a, a, you know, a, a, a theologically sound family that Matthew came from. He would have been the black sheep. So when he's disowned in order for Matthew, if Matthew is a a decent, good person that respects those traditions, when his family disowned him becoming a tax collector, which is likely, very likely, uh, it doesn't say that happened, um, but for a good Jewish family to continue to own their son, there would have been a disconnect there, right? And to disown basically means you're not to call yourself my son anymore, So when Matthew gives this list, Mark is really blunt and straightforward, right? He's kind of the person who wrote with Peter. And I think Peter's pretty fearless and truthful. And this would have been something that kind of, uh, you know, clearly Peter writing through Mark would have been setting that right a little bit. Um, And in Matthew following Jesus and being renamed Levi, there's a new creation there that would once again then be connected to Alphaeus right, who's maybe a respected person in town, a respected citizen. So where Matthew's friends give him that honor, he, in order to honor his father, does not give himself that title, and he he gives himself the title of Matthew the tax collector, his old self. Um, At some level, it kind of shows you the heart of just Matthew being humble, Matthew remembering his roots, Matthew giving glory to God by acknowledging where he came from, um, and you see just this idea of um, this respect that, that Matthew's having by not naming his dad because his dad disowned him. So he, to name him would be to ignore and dishonor his own father. Uh, so when Jesus says love one another and respect one another, when the Ten Commandments say honor your father and mother, you see a, a Matthew trying to do that. It's, I, I think you see a Matthew trying to do that at some level here. So either way, we'll go on. So now we know who the who the apostles are, who's going to get sent out. Uh, next, we need to know where they're going to go. So verse 5, Jesus gives d- directions on that. These 12, Jesus sent out, again, that word sent out is apostello, uh, 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 apostle, and, and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus already had success with the woman at the well and the Samaritan city, so Jesus is going to connect with Samaritans. This is not an issue of don't preach to the Gentiles. On this particular missionary mission, he's telling them where to go. So when God calls people to go to a certain place, that excludes other places, but it's not exclusionary of God of those places. So God will get to the Samaritans, but this mission, that's not what it's for. And and when he's commanding us, his, his disciples, to become apostles, he gives direction on that. And it's not that he's not taking care of the other places. It's that for us on this mission, we're going to go in this place. So Jesus gives them a, re- a region to go to and he limits them to the house of Israel. This is part of the mission. It's a consistent principle. Romans 1 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. Israel's a special nation to God has been since the beginning of founding it when God made the nation it's the only nation on earth that can really claim that God founded it, uh, that it was done apart from any sort of human uh, power or conquest. Uh, it is done purely by God's will, and God keeps a special place for him. So when Messiah shows up, the, the first towns to formally have the king announced are the Jewish towns, because God promised that. He commands them in verse 5. Paragelion, the command there is... Again, getting used to the idea that God commands his servants. So if you've given your life to God, God may command you to do things. And he's not your master if you ignore his command. Like, by definition, uh, that doesn't work. So he commands them, perigelion. It is to declare something or to transmit a message. So he's passing along an order to these apostles that he's sending out. And he wants them to say something. Uh, So as he does that, sending them to the lost sheep's part of the mission, the house of Israel's part of the mission... And God, uh, God sees Israel as a nation, even though they don't have a country. So in the first century, Rome rules this territory, right? But according to God, Israel, these, are, is, these are Jewish cities that we're talking about. And God still sees a nation of Israel in verse 6 um, that, that the world doesn't acknowledge at this point in history. So fascinating that we live in an era when there's actually an Israel uh, established again in the land, um, which tells you something about where we're at in God's plan. But there's an ultimatum from the king there to give this advanced message and to go out. This message has been 1,500 years in the waiting for these towns. So it's only right to proclaim it. Uh, And and it's important that they do. It's time for the owner of the vineyard to come back to the vineyard and hold the, the vineyard keepers accountable for their behavior. Matthew 21. The sheep have no shepherd, as we just saw at the end of chapter 9. The, the people keeping the vineyard are in a little bit of trouble with God because there's no shepherd guiding the flock, and this is God's flock. It doesn't belong to the Levites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It belongs to God, and they are stewards of his flock. So to reach these people, he's sending out these disciples to multiply the message. But the message stays the same. So even if they go out in groups of 10 and they're all doing these miracles that he's empowering them to do, then that means there's miracles unrecorded that they're all doing, but they're unrecorded because it's not Jesus doing them. So there's six more resurrections, and there's six more messages getting preached, and there's that many more cities that Jesus can get to in a day. So next we see what they're supposed to do, verse 7. They're supposed to preach. As you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the demons, freely you've received, freely give. Now, in chapters 5 through 7, they received the word of God through the Sermon on the Mount, and now they're supposed to give it. So they give it, and then in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus healed a bunch of people, and maybe even healed some of the disciples, because he says, freely you've received, freely you've given. And that could mean they received the teachings of Jesus, verse 7, but it could also equally mean they received some healing from Jesus, verse 8. And so... He's modeled it. He's done it before. They've seen it done. Now it's time to copy. So he's, he's creating apostles to speak his word. When a good messenger speaks for a king, they speak it word for word. And this isn't just ancient world. This is still today. An ambassador of a king is supposed to represent what that king says accurately. So that's their call here. Matthew 4.17, Jesus began to preach and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, and in verse seven, what he's telling them to say is, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." <laughs> it's the same message, word for word. So they don't have to imagine what they're going to say; they've already been given words to say. And the, you know, the same is true for us. We don't have to come up with new and inventive ways to repeat what God has already said. Or people wonder, "Well, I don't know if God's talking to me, and I'm trying to hear what He said." Well, have you been in the Word and have you prayed? Because That's what we see we're supposed to do. And God's given us lots of words in the Bible. It's a thick book. So there's tons of things God has already said that are established for all of eternity. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to take away from it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A child can repeat that message. You know what, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So you meet somebody and they're all stressed out about the world. You know what, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. You could be a citizen of a different kingdom right? You could change that right now. Repent. Follow the king. You don't have to be part of that empire because all you're getting is the fruit of anxiety and anger and worry and stress. Choose God. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You really can just repeat what's already in the scriptures. So really the instruction is to say, say what I've said. You've heard it. Now go do it. Matthew 7 24. So he repeats the things that are said in chapter 8 and 9. He repeats, or repeats the things that were said in the Sermon on the Mount and then go repeat the things that I did in chapters 8 and 9. Raising the dead, that's a stunning thing. Think of this. There's six more resurrections happening that maybe we don't know about. There's people coming to life all over Galilee that had to send a message. right? And what we don't have recorded is probably as powerful as anything else because the focus here stays on Jesus. That's out of respect of the writer Matthew. Freely you've received, freely you've given. To me, again, that's just really interesting. Um, so it implies to some degree that some of these disciples we have were receivers of some of this. So one of the questions I got for heaven is, was the paralytic dropped through the roof? Is, is, does that become one of the disciples? You know, he went home, but did he then come back to follow Jesus? Or the scribe that had no place to lay his head and no nest to sleep in, uh, it doesn't say if the scribe followed Jesus or not. So was that scribe Matthew? Uh, was it maybe Judas? Like it, so, you again. Those are questions that we don't know from the Bible, but I'd be fascinated to find out which of these disciples maybe were part of the stories of healing, and that's how we got those stories. So just a thought, just a thing there. The point here of just freely giving, freely giving, few different layers to that one. When we do ministry for the kingdom, we don't get rich off it. Like At a very practical, worldly level, we're not here to get money. And if you look at the next verse, verse 9, it's very clear this isn't about money. So when we're doing things in the kingdom, we just do it for free. Like This isn't where we make our cash, you know. and we don't do things for money. It's part of why we don't pass a plate here, and, and we're not going to, ever. And, 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 and when you look at Calvary chapels, it's really common that they don't pass a plate. Because if God guides, God provides. He doesn't need our money to do his work. What happens in the kingdom is people freely give because they see a ministry that's full of the Holy Spirit and there's a blessing to be a part of that. We're going to see that here later today. That helping people teach to provide for people that are teaching the word frees them up to do more of it. God actually blesses that and honors it as though you're the peace person teaching the word. So what happens in the kingdom is when the Spirit starts to move, people are moved by that, and the people that have resources say, I want to give my resources to where I see the Holy Spirit moving. And then that ministry has all the resources they need. They never have to beg or ask. Uh, they're not paupers. And, and I think Jesus is trying to teach his disciples this, this core idea that when we serve Jesus, he'll provide for us. We don't have to try to turn that into something that provides for us. It's why, you know, I'll be really frank, it's why there's a great danger when you have denominations that send a 20-year-old through seminary and they come out and they earn a full-time job with benefits and everything else. Now that's a job with an income source. And that's dangerous to the ministry. It's dangerous to the church because they don't want to then preach on something that would offend tithers. They don't want to do something that that would anger people or threaten their position in the ministry. Well, then you're following the world. You're not following the Holy Spirit. And there's a great strength when you have ministers and teachers of the word that don't ask for a penny because they don't need it. They are they have another. They have a side job. And it, and as a ministry gets up and running, you can see someone's character over time before they're starting to make money off of that ministry or being provided for by it. Either way, it's just that idea that when we give something, when we get something, there's a spiritual level. The freely you've received, freely you give too. A lot of times our gift in the church, our bo- part of the body, our ministry, is how God ministered to us in the first place. So say God raised us from the dead, then that is likely going to be an area that we are just joyful to bless other people with because we know what it feels like. I remember when we first heard Jeff Sowell's teaching in Madison, Wisconsin. What a blessing to just hear a chapter-by-chapter teaching delivered with the work he would put into his teachings, the, the rigor he put into it. Uh, learning some of the Hebrew and some of the Greek. But it wasn't about that. It was that God blessed that ministry through the Holy Spirit because this is a guy trying to be faithful. He's given his whole life to the kingdom. And we were so blessed by that that when we had to move away from Madison, all we wanted to do is bless other people. We couldn't find churches that did it. We're like, well, let's start a Bible study because we're blessed by this. We know other people will be blessed by it. And then suddenly that thing that God blessed you with is the very thing that you can then bless other people with because you're so appreciative of it. Freely you've received, freely give. And when that happens, just give it away, and and there'll be more. Uh, Provide, in the Greek that's obtain. Obtain neither gold nor silver or copper in your money belts. That's like saying, you know, don't get any ones, twenties, hundreds. Like, you don't need to go and gather a bunch of money to do what I'm asking you to do. Verse 10, nor bag for your journey. Don't pack a backpack, nor to. Two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, for a worker is worthy of his food. This list, list is kind of similar uh, to a list from the Talmud that says when you go to the Temple Mount, uh, you, you go with staff, shoes, girdle of money, dusty feet. You don't bring that stuff with you to the temple. When you're doing God's work, you don't need to gather more worldly stuff. It also doesn't say, let's not mistake this, it also does not say go naked and do this stuff and go without money. It basically says, do not go gather your, don't stockpile. You don't need to go back to your house to fetch another tunic so you're packed for the trip. You don't have to pack the kitchen sink. In fact, if you just go as I'm telling you to go, and again, this is specific to this missionary journey, if you just go, you're going to learn that God can provide for you. And I want to teach you something here. So when God says, go as you are, Uh, That doesn't mean to go without the stuff that they have on. They may already have a tunic on. They may already have sandals and a staff. But he is saying, just go. And this is really similar to when he commanded the disciples to get in the boat to go to Gergesenes a a, a couple chapters ago, or last chapter. It's very similar to that because you had somebody saying, oh, I got to go take care of my dad. And he said, no, let the dead take care of the dead. Come with me. And it was really just a day trip he was asking this guy to go on. He wasn't asking him to abandon his father. He was asking him to get in a boat and go see something so he could learn something about how he would go out of his way to save the one or the two in the graveyard across the lake. And that's how Jesus is. He goes to save the lost sheep. So it really makes you wonder at this level what the disciples are going to learn on these trips. I mean, there's a whole short story series waiting to happen of these little mini trips the disciples would take. So it's true and that we can rely on God, but it's unique to this ministry and outing. This is not a passage that says to missionaries, don't plan for your trip and don't gather funds to pay for your, don't be a burden on other people either. There's other missionary trips, or you look at the ministry of Paul and he, he brags about the fact that he doesn't ask for money from people. So we don't want to be a burden when we go out, but on this particular trip, he's testing their faith. Can you go out and trust that I'll provide for you? Again, in each of these small towns, because there were multitudes that heard Jesus do the Sermon on the Mount, every one of these small towns probably had two or three families that have already heard Jesus. So when these disciples go into the town, they have to kind of try to identify these people and people that are friendly to the message of Jesus, and God's already preparing the provision for the disciples before they go out. So this is not a passage that says, "Test, test God by going unprepared and doing foolish things. In fact, in Matthew 4, 7, that's one of the temptations of Jesus, and Jesus' response is, it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So we don't take a passage like this out of context and then foolishly go forward without planning. We go forward without planning when God asks us to go forward without planning. And he's going to ask disciples to go out in, in, in other situations, and there'll be different instructions for that. So we have to use some discernment, we have to use wisdom, and ultimately we have to pray and come close to Jesus, as the beginning of this chapter pointed out. So remember, the whole apostle thing starts with prayer, and then it's coming close to Jesus. We don't leap and get ahead of Jesus, but we also don't drag our feet and get behind Jesus. If we're servants of our master, we keep up, and we keep up enthusiastically. He says a worker is worthy of his food. So there's... An important concept here, and I think it's unique to Matthew. Um, if we do what God's calling us to do, we're going to find that it's, it's natural that when people respond to God's work, they're naturally going to gratefully host and feed and help out. It's how the kingdom of God works, that this kingdom that Matthew's trying to define for us. It, it is not in a worldly sense. It makes no sense at all. So they're not supposed to bring anything, but they are supposed to rely on other people in the body to get their food. So they don't go pack a bag full of snacks and lambas bread, but they do go out and do the ministry and trust that there will be workers out there, that, that they will be workers worthy of their food. The word worker here in the Greek is workman. It's for hire, somebody for hire, a manual laborer. It's, it's a kind of a low form of employment in the Greek world. Uh, it could be figurative, that, that when you're doing Jesus' work, you're just working for those uh, wages that Jesus is going to provide, spiritual wages. That's a legit way to read this. Um, and then I see the word worthy, and in the Greek that's the word axios. We're going to see that word a lot, especially in 11, 12, and 13. We're going to keep seeing that word. It means to weigh something or to measure something. So if I'm a workman and I should be, wor- I should be measured accordingly to my work, That's an interesting kind of economic to the kingdom of God. And in context, remember the writer is Matthew, a tax collector. He thinks in terms of exchange. And he uses terms of exchange because he sees that in the kingdom of God, there is an exchange happening. You can be a worker for the kingdom of God, but there is a weight or a measure, an axios, that makes a a worthiness to your work. So you are redeemed and bought and saved as the bride of Christ, that never changes. It's not about our works. But there is a measure that goes on that God looks at the work we do for the kingdom after he's given us the gift of salvation. And the question for him is, is this person doing what I ask them to do or not? If we call ourselves God's servant and we don't act or work for the kingdom at all, we just work for ourselves six days a week, and then on Sunday we get our God stuff done as quick as possible so we can go back to serving ourselves. that's not worth a lot in the kingdom of God. There are rewards and benefits that go with all of this, right? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven is an economic exchange that we saw in the last two chapters. If that's our goal, if our goal is to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, our salvation's not based on our works, but the rewards we get are based on the things that we do. So this is important. It's important to find the balance that we're not a burden. If there's an economic exchange and a, uh, someone goes in to preach the gospel, but they're just a burden on the people there, that actually puts a sour taste in people's mouth about that person. They're just eating all my food and sucking up all my time, and I don't get much out of this person. So there are people that use the ministry to just live off it and, and leech off the church, and, it, and it's not godly, and it doesn't give a good thing. On the other hand, it's okay for people that are doing the work to let folks, folks support them because there's a reward for them by supporting a Spirit-filled minister of the Word. It goes both. There's a balance. It's a narrow path. In Acts 18.2, we see Paul, and he meets a person named Aquila, and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, they're good hosts. They have people in because Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, so there's persecution, and Paul went to see this good, worthy couple. And because he was a tent maker like they were, he stayed and worked with them. He worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That equation that Paul had, and this is Paul, one of the greatest evangelists in the world, it implies in in Acts chapter 18 that he worked six days a week, and then he did the Sabbath, and he went to the synagogue on the seventh day. And God commands us to work six days a week and give God the Holy Sabbath, a seventh day. God doesn't ask seven days a week. So for anyone who's doing the work of the kingdom to think, well, I don't don't have to work or I shouldn't work, and your ministry's struggling with money, like it makes me sick when I see a church that has a pastor that's being full-time paid and they got the little thermometer on the wall because they need more money for things. Like, don't you see the equation, pastor? You need to get back to work because your church isn't supporting the ministry. So maybe you should help out. And Paul was proud of the fact. He bragged, you know, I never took money from you. I never asked for your resources. Give it to the kingdom. Support the church with that money. And, and you know, it, it's one of those kinds of things that I think when Paul says, or when Jesus says a worker is worthy of his food, there is don't take from the church if you don't have to. But there's also a point where the disciples realized they needed to find other people to expand the work of the church because they wanted to stick to teaching the Word of God. There's a point where a body of believers says, we want you to continue to prep for Bible study, so we want to make that happen. And and Paul advises Timothy on the flip side, Timothy, it's okay for the church to support your work. It's okay for the body of Christ to pay for the people doing, the, the, the apostles being sent out. And that's part of the equation of it. So there's this tough balance where people religiously really get in knots over this. But it's very simple. If you're called to do the work for God, don't be a burden to the church. Also be willing to take resources from the church. Don't beg and borrow and steal from the church, but also be willing to let the church bless you. Because when the church blesses you, you know that that's not your ministry. God made the ministry happen because God provided for the ministry. You didn't do that. And there's a humility that comes with that attitude. It's not about the worker, it's about the work. And we have to be responsive to that. So if we're going to be sent out, we have to allow God to provide for us. And that's what he's asking the disciples to do here. And then in verse 11, now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it's worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go out into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, same word, axios, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. So now you get another angle to being sent out. The person being sent out has to do some discernment. This is not judgment. Judgment is making a decision about someone's eternal status with God. God does judgment, but he asks his servants to be discerning, to be wise, to be shrewd, uh, to, to, to apply what he's already given us in his word is to administer. It's not to judge. So he asks his disciples to go out and find these worthy people, these people that have, uh, have axios. They have been weighed. They've been tested. These are people that are already sticking out for the Lord. These are not, when it says worthy, that's not about being filthy rich. It's not about find, finding the best holiday inn and hanging out with them. And, and, and go into the house and greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And you stay there till you go out. If you're going to go out, it's a blessing for people to host you especially if you're on fire for Christ. Like that's a, especially for veteran believers to be around somebody who's a new believer, man, that's so awesome. We love that enthusiasm. We wish we could still have it, right? And being around brand new believers helps flame us back up. So there's a huge blessing. And look at the equation. He's telling his disciples, don't take a bunch of money with you, but if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. That's the exchange rate for Matthew, the tax collector. We don't give you money, but we do give you peace. We'll give you blessing. There's an exchange happening here, but it's an economy of the kingdom of heaven because all kingdoms have an economy. And the economy is this blessing that you give. And if they're not worthy, if they don't weigh out, let your peace return to you. This was a big deal in first century Jewish culture. They will, When they greet somebody, they say, you know, may God be with you or may God's, God's peace be upon you. And when they say bu- goodbye to somebody, they say, shalom, let you keep that peace. So the idea of exchanging blessings was a huge Jewish custom. In fact, they, were, they would even go out of their way and, and, and still do to some extent that when something goes wrong or there's you know, shady dealings, they'll actually make a point to say, I remove my blessing from you. And in the first century, that was common behavior. So Jesus isn't inventing a new exchange here. He's applying Jewish traditions that God has put in place, and he's validating them. There is something valuable here. When a person of God comes in with a pure heart and a meek and a humble heart, and someone feeds them and takes care of them and gives them a bed to sleep on, that family gets the same blessing as the the one who's sent out. And God sets up that economy in order to provide for his servants. And they're not going to get rich, and they shouldn't charge for it, and they shouldn't beg for it. They shouldn't go shopping around town. If they go into a house, they stay there. So it says nothing about how nice the facilities are. It does say how worthy the family is, right? So multitudes Jesus had taught, they probably have gone back to their homes. When it says a household, this is a, in first century Jewish culture, that's a family usually with kids, multi-generational living, extended family. So there's a whole community of people you're living with when you come into a household, and that idea of exchange. Here's what you're going to give people. I've given you power, so when you bless people, there's power in that. Let your peace return to you. Look, if you get a family that doesn't want to hear God's word, there's they, you're you're annoying them with all your Jesus talk. Take your blessing back. Well, I'll take my. If I'm leaving, I'm taking my blessing back with me. God actually honors that. Jesus honors that. He instructs for us to do that. So our goodwill is a spiritual commodity. It has a resource to it. And that resource isn't from our own strength and our own power. It's straight from God. And hosters are blessed in doing it. And God tells us to start operating under that, uh, that equation. So Israel's getting a chance because they're the roots of the kingdom of God. They're getting a chance to be part of it because God's fair, right? They, the Pharisees and Sadducees have screwed up, but, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they're part, of the, part of the program. And if the Jewish people won't host God's people, Gentiles will. First to the Jews, then to the Gentile. Malachi 3.9, right at the end of the Old Testament, God says through his prophet, You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. When we give, even financially to the kingdom of God, when we give our time, when we give our hospitality, when we give and take our peace, God honors all of that. It's the only area of our spiritual walk where God says, test me in this. Challenge me. Try me. People that struggle by clinging to all their resources that God's given them in the first place, it's just a struggle. It's a curse. You're under a curse when you do that. So in in this instruction from Jesus sending out his apostles, he's giving Israel a chance to get out of that curse and to give the blessing of peace to individual households. All he's done is he's allowing individuals to make a choice versus working with entire nations. So here you go. The kingdom of God starts to have an economy. Verse 14. And whoever will not receive your words, receive you, hosting, or hear your words, right, rejecting the teachings of Jesus. When you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they've had a chance. And they choose to reject the words of God. If that's the case, there's a justice that's going to happen. God doesn't force anybody to be part of the kingdom. So you find the worthy people, and if they don't prove to be worthy, if they reject you, verse 14, you walk away. The clauses do not receive, do not hear, has to do with both hearing God's word and serving God's servants. Right? When he says your words, we know that in in verse 7 and verse 19, these are actually Jesus' words that they're repeating. And it's generous for Jesus to say if they don't hear your words. But if they're doing their job, they're just speaking what Jesus said. So if you try to go about life and just say, well, you know what, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, Jesus said this, Jesus said that. There's a point where some people will just delight in that. Man, I just love how everything that comes out of your mouth is from the the scriptures. And there's people that just get irritated by that. Why are you such a Bible thumper? Right? And you can determine people's worth in the kingdom of God by how they react to God's words. It's really simple, Or people that say, well, that's not what that means. And you're like, well, you know, it's what it says. So there's a point at which sometimes when people just reject a godly person, you just walk away. And not only do you pull your peace back to you, which means that place is going to have some troubles after you leave. That happens. You also shake the dust off your feet. That's a great image, right? It comes back from like sandal throwing, you know, but there's this tradition that you don't even take the dirt of that house with you. You take nothing from them. Again, that's an economic exchange. If you shake the dust off your feet, you haven't even taken dirt or dust from that property and walked away with it. You literally came asking for nothing and you leave taking nothing. And that, that lack of exchange is going to be part of what brings a curse. Verse 15, when they mention Sodom and Gomorrah to the Jews and to even Christian, we know what that means. Genesis 13 through 19, those two cities were judged because of their absolute abysmal level of sin, completely rejecting God's law, doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, and God just said, you know, I'm going to end this before it starts. And like the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Uh, There's great archaeology right now where they're looking at the bottom of the the Salt Lake um, and the Dead Sea that's right there, not in Utah but in, in Israel and it's the lake itself is a border between two countries and where they think Sodom is is actually on the bottom of the not Israel's territory but the neighboring nation's territory so they can't quite get to it and uh anyways just good stuff on youtube where you can see that there's some stuff underneath the the dead sea uh that's I'm off topic here so I'll get back it's a real mess if you're going to be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah it, it implies that there's a day of judgment coming And it won't be pretty for entire cities that reject God's people. So, we're going to go into the next section here as he's sending them out. And he's going to give them warnings. And You know, this is the wonderful part about Jesus. He's just truthful with his disciples. Uh, I laugh because I'm studying chapter 10 and I'm like, you know, this is a lot of like heavy stuff in chapter 10. Because everybody loves to read Matthew chapter 5. But you don't hear Matthew chapter 10 getting teached on a lot in Sunday morning churches especially ones where they're trying to tickle people's ears. Um, I'll just read it. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Hey, welcome to the kingdom of God. I'm going to send you out to be eaten. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. You know, in Matthew 5, verse 11, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He's, I love this about Jesus. He warns them, you can go out as a humble follower of Christ. You're going off to be a peacemaker. You have a pure heart. You're doing it for all the right reasons. You're sharing God's word because you've learned from Christ himself. And get ready, you're going to have people that hate that because this is a spiritual battle. Because the world isn't divided into nations and racial groups. It's divided into those who serve God and love God and those that reject God and ignore God. There's only two camps. So when you, when you remind people of God's words, this is something they're trying to not pay attention to. They'd like to just ignore it or, they, or they're hostile against it. You're going to, as an innocent creature, you're going to run into people that are like, why don't you just cool down with the Jesus stuff? and relax, man. Just enjoy what this world has to offer a little bit. And you don't have to always be talking about Jesus. And that kind of intensity just rattles people, right? And it rattles them because they're reminded of a decision they have been putting off or a decision that they've made in the wrong direction. And then when they see your joy and that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there's a reaction to that. So when Jesus says, I send you out. He's taking responsibility. This is the plan. He's sending out sheep force, the holy sheep elite squad, right? That's his, that's his mission. He's going to send out the foolish things of this world to confound the wise so that God gets the glory. Our primary duty is to learn from God and to go out and share what we're learning. You're not an apostle by coming to this Bible study. When you come to church, that's not being an apostle, you're being a disciple. But there's a point in time where you've come to God's house and you've been blessed so much in God's house. It's why we tell people like when you first get here, we don't need you to help or serve or give or do anything. Just come and be blessed. Because there's a point at which you start overflowing with that blessing. And it's natural and it's good and it's holy. And you're just like, I'm so blessed. I'm tired of sitting back just taking all the time. I want to give. And we're like, ah, oh, that's God developing the right heart. You're not given out of obligation. You're not given to try to get attention for yourself. You're not giving so that you build connections and get hooked into the community. You're just given because you've been given to. And you've allowed people to bless you. I think that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. They've never experienced having people just be nice. Like this is pre-Christian world. And people don't just say, let me offer you a meal. That's unheard of right? This is not a wealthy community we're talking about, but God's doing something in their heart, and they're realizing if people offer me food all the time, there's a point in time where somebody comes to my town to minister, and I'm ready to offer food because I've gotten so much from others. Freely give because you've been freely given too, and for that equation to happen, I have to receive the blessings of God before I can give the blessings of God, right? I just think this is beautiful. So, Notice another thing. You're going to be delivered to the councils, but you'll be scourged in the synagogues. Be wary of this. Verse 17, beware of this. Don't. He's, he's not sending out his disciples with, with unicorns and butterflies. He's sending them out with truth. Be completely tuned into this fact. It's not the civic councils you need to worry about. It's the synagogues. It's the hyper-religious, legalistic, think-they-know-everything-but-have-no-fruit-in-their-life people those are the people you need to worry about. They get violent. They don't want to just get rid of you or shut you up. They want to kill you. And there's this I, this furious, red-faced anger that pops up when you tell people to their face that they're outside the will of God or that God says this, and they don't agree with what you're saying, which is why it's important. We just plagiarize the word. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it because then we can do that with a complete wisdom of God coming through our mouth, and we act as his messengers. But sometimes those messengers have to go to people that think they run the religious system, that it's their church, that they own things, and they've already taken that from God. What's, how are they going to treat his messenger, right? And, and again, this is Jesus explains this through the parables later in Matthew. He says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's one phrase. It goes together. Um, It is not to be wise as Satan. That's not the same thing here. Serpents is a different word than Satan. Uh, Satan's often represented by a serpent, but I think we need to not confuse that here because it goes with doves too. And he's taking serpents and doves. There's a contrast there. He's taking wise and harmless as a contrast. The wisdom here is the wisdom of survival. You're going to go out with nothing. You need to be kind of wise. You need to use your head. Right, so when we march out in the name of Jesus and we do foolish things, God's never asked us to be foolish. He's asked us to be wise. Right. So what is unique about snakes is that everyone attacks them because they're cursed, and because everyone attacks them, snakes find wonderful places to hide. Like we had a, a garage in Ohio and it had like a a two-layer roof, and the snakes would hide between the two layers, so we could hear them slithering around up there, and we could see their skins getting rubbed off and falling down between the cracks, Uh, but it was really impossible to get to them, which is pretty wise of them. They got a nice hot place to stay and live, and they could uh, have their little snake families, and we couldn't get to them. Yeah, they're these rat snakes, these big black, five-foot-long, one-inch-thick nasty looking snakes. But when we tried to, when we killed one, our neighbor got all upset with us because he said, you killed too many of those rat snakes and you get rats. That's why we like those snakes. They're good snakes. And I'm thinking they're good snakes in your garage, in my garage. They just freak me out. So yeah, I know. It's creepy hearing those things slither around up there, but to be wise, find a place to hide. Snakes would go under rocks. They're hard to spot. They warn you before they bite you. If they have a rattler on them, they, they survive because they hide. <laughs> they sur- and, and you look at like the Holocaust. A lot the Jewish people that survived deportation were often ones that hid. And those stories are the ones that we remember. There's a discretion to wisdom. So this isn't wisdom in terms of being full of guile and plotting and planning and manipulation. No, it's, that's why the doves part is added in there. But it is wisdom is where you sleep and where you find a home and how you determine who's worthy to stay with how long you stay in a town versus when you get out of that town, right? And I think you stay until you realize the leadership and that this is a dead end, that you're going to continue to have these roadblocks because they don't want you there. And once you determine that, it's they're worthless. They're worthless people. And they're not for the kingdom of God and the economy of the kingdom. There's not a lot of time you want to waste on those folks because they've already determined that they're right. And they've made their decision against God's very words. The dove there, doves, you know, get captured for sacrifices. There's flocks of them. They're all over the place. Here's the thing with the dove. If you catch one, they really don't put up a fight. They're pretty harmless. They don't bite. They don't get after you. Um, so when you have this contrast to the, the, the serpents and the, the doves, be real and, and responsible, and, but don't be aggressive and don't have an agenda. And don't try to push people. So there's, there's a balance here. It's tough to go out and evangelize because how do I go out and just be wise and shrewd, find worthy people, connect with people that want to hear God's words, but also be harmless? And I, I don't want to go out and do damage to God's reputation by being annoying to people and to be bothering them. So knowing how to enter into conversations is something you you got to see, learn from veterans that do it, but you know when it's wrong because instead of drawing people to Jesus or instead of getting people to hate you for the words you're saying, people just hate you because of your horrible social skills. And that's not honoring to God. I don't want them to be mad at me because I'm being rude. I want them to be mad at what God says in their life because they've honestly heard what God's word says through me. There's a difference, and it's a subtle one which requires wisdom, to get. And it requires the, the the Beatitudes. It requires that disposition that he outlines in chapter 5 in order to kind of capture this. But again, he's talking to his apostles now for a particular missionary journey. And he's sending them out with these truths that they're going to have so that they'll be a testimony before governors and kings, it says in chapter 18. That's the idea. And he's again, he's talking to fishermen and he's telling them they're going to be before governors and kings. That's a pretty bold prediction there. And the fishermen may be thinking to themselves, well, if I'm, I'm just a fisherman, what am I going to say if I'm before you know, kings and Gentiles? And, you know, verse 19 then says, but when, you del- when, you del- when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you should say, for it'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it's not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. If they've learned from Jesus, they already know what to say because Jesus has already said it. So they can just keep repeating it and God will bring to mind those things they've been there. If you've never studied through the word of God, it's awfully hard to repeat the word of God, which is why we just do things chapter by chapter. I want everyone who comes into this fellowship every week, I want you to know the scriptures, because I believe there's power in that, and you don't bring the power to the table. Versus verse 20, it's not you who speaks. A good servant speaks for his master by repeating his master, not by inventing new things. So it's interesting how powerful this is. By 150 A.D., one Christian said, we are everywhere, we're in your town, in your cities, we're in your country, we're in your army and navy, we're in your palaces, we're in your senate, we're more numerous than anyone. And then Constantine comes along and the whole Roman Empire turns Christian. So there's an exchange of the kingdom of God that is entirely an economic exchange in that things are moving between people in the kingdom, goods and, and, and spiritual resources. And that is so effective and so powerful. Don't be a burden to people, but let them provide for you if they want to. The doing things out of love actually works, but we have to trust that it works because it sure doesn't look like it would. Why would anybody put me up for free? Because they love you, but they don't know me, but they know Jesus and you know Jesus and they know that you know Jesus. So the kingdom works. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We just take care of each other. It's easy. But that easy relies on people not taking advantage of it and people trusting in it. And there's a narrow way that gets has to get laid out there. Uh, that quote, by the way, is from uh, D. James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosion book. Great book that gets into the nuances of evangelism and how to do it. But the point being that what Jesus is teaching his disciples here, it is absolutely powerful. It is so much more powerful than this world's systems that it, it changes nations, Right, the Romans become Italians, right? Art and music makers, right? Doing odes to their loves on balconies, right? The Anglo's become the English, the 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 Gauls become the French, uh, the. We just see over and over again that this changes nations. My goodness, the Swedes be, or the Vikings become the Swedes. How much more of a transition do you get? Right, this is just how God works. I just. If we trust in this system, God can change nations, but we have to do it. We don't just go to church and go home and not do this. We have to actually do it. Verse nineteen. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how you, you you speak. It's the part of the equation here is we have to trust in the Lord. To worry is the opposite of trusting in the Lord. If we trust in, if we really trust in a chair, we just sit on it. We don't think about it. It doesn't take tons of work. If we have faith that the chair will hold us, that faith is then easy because total faith means we don't even think about it. We just sit on the chair. If God's kingdom works, we just sit on the chair. We don't strain and push. We don't have to pray harder to have our faith more deep. In fact, the harder we pray and the more we worry and the more we stress, the less we're really trusting the Lord that He's going to do it. So we pray. But we pray in the sense of like finding God's will. And we pray for God's will to happen. We pray for our daily provision and God provides it. And then we praise him in our prayers and we thank him for that provision. And there's this exchange that continues to happen between people and their master and their God. It says it'll be given to you. It doesn't promise them survival. In fact, 11 of the 12 disciples are gonna die. in the work that he's setting them out to do. So this is, again, Jesus just telling them the truth. It'll be, it'll be given to you in that hour what to speak, right? But he doesn't promise the outcome. He just promises that they're gonna be able to have a pure heart. They're gonna be able to do it with a clear conscience. So uh, they're not to worry about their lives, he's already taught that, um, but he, he represents the reality of, of how serious these interactions can be with humans. So we try to stay away from them if we can, uh, but we stay harmless if we find ourselves in them. So note this when it says, it'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Uh, some people use that as an excuse to not prepare for things, but this is just an assurance to the persecuted that God's with them. And, it's a re- and the command here is to not worry. And the explanation is, you're God will give you what to talk about. So if you're preparing for a public speaking affair or you're preparing for something, that's perfectly okay, especially if that preparation is to be in the Bible. So if I want to repeat what God says, I should be learning what he says as much as I can. I should be praying and meditating day and night. I should pray without ceasing. Those acts are things that God asks us to do, and they're not contradictory to this. The point of this is that God's going to reveal and show us what we need to say in those situations. And he's talking to fishermen that are worried about going before governors and kings. So if that happens, don't worry. You are you are more precious to me than that governor or king because you're my servant and how much more do I value you? And frankly, the goal is to testify to that governor or king so they can be a member of the kingdom too. And you're going after their heart. I'm sorry, it's not that God has more precious than other, but... When God takes a servant of God, they're at least equals with that governor and king. They shouldn't worry about it. And God's using them and speaking through them in a way he's not using the king or the governor. And in that, they become a resource for God to get his word out and to glorify his name. Does that make sense? Yeah. Our mission is to mimic Christ. And in that mimicking, we have a worth in the kingdom of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Sometimes the more we prepare, the less we rely on God. And there's a principle there, but there's a balance, right? Foolish lack of preparation is to take advantage and to test our Lord. Um, so be in the Word. Be in prayer. It's clear that God can be invited. This idea that the Spirit will be speaking through us. It's clear that we can invite God to be in us and work through us. It's clear that God is, weighs people to our benefit. And the degree to which we actually benefit from God's Spirit being in us and working through us. It's part of why we fight sin. If we're struggling with sin, that's not a house that the Spirit's going to indwell very well. But if we do things with a clear heart, a good conscience, we've repented before God and the kingdom of heaven is at hand and we've actually been joined that kingdom and been part of it, we are fueled and we actually benefit from the Holy Spirit working through us. It's a good thing. Compare that to demonic possession, where that's not a good thing for the host. But for us, it's something that edifies and purifies and, 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 and is absolute rush when you just feel like the Lord's just taking your words and, and helping them and fueling them and giving them a power that you don't have. We see in Acts chapter 4 um, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, that they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. For these fishermen to be worried about talking to governors and kings, that's exactly what brings glory to Jesus. They behold the man which has been healed and standing among them. The power of what they're going to do makes it undeniable. You spend time with Jesus, and an unlearned and ignorant person can be a bold person before the greatest rulers of this world. It's an equalizer. And even more so, I think you you become something that actually is a benefit to those people. This is a... If you never witness, you never get to experience this. Like So if there's people in the room and, and you're all worried about talking about Jesus with people and, and you, you're, you're concerned with what they'll think of you, well, Jesus is telling you, there's going to be some of them that hate your guts. Well, that's the truth of it. But if you never do it, You never get to feel that feeling of the the Holy Spirit just taking your words and making them all click. It's a rush. But there's no need to use you if you never witness and you never go out. You're an apostle that stays home. That's an oxymoron. But when you go out and you talk to people that do not know the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you share that message with them, the Holy Spirit starts to use you. You start to see it happening. This is one of those things where we'll talk with people. Hey, I've gone to my church for ten years. We've never really seen, we don't think the Holy Spirit's really you know a moving and shaking force in the church because we just never see it. The logical question is, well, do you see people? Do you see new people coming to the faith in your fellowship? Do you see people being going from disciples to apostles in your fellowship? Like, are you sending people out? Like, are you doing anything for the kingdom, or are you just meeting like a social club every week? Because if you're not going out as apostles, That Holy Spirit coming over you is not necessary. You're not going to new territory. So the Holy Spirit's not moving, not because God doesn't move on the earth. Just like with the Samaritan villages, they're going to see God show up and hang out. Um, But it's not moving because there's no need to move. Now brother, verse 21 says, now brother's going to deliver up brother to death. Like, hey, welcome to the kingdom of God. You're going to have brothers that deliver each other to death. A father and a father his child. And a child, the children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Right? If we got a father in heaven, the kingdom becomes our new family. And there's, wow, That sounds cult-like. That's not cult-like. That's the kingdom of God. Cults are a, a sad imitation of what the community of Christ is. And when the community of Christ does it under God's supervision, it's holy and right and pure and it changes the world. And when people do it for their own vainglory, lost sex, pride, greed, it, that just becomes sick and twisted because Satan loves to destroy people by having pseudo-religious communities of people. It's the difference between a church that's alive in the Holy Spirit and a church that just sucks life out of the people that go there. It, when you go to church on a Sunday morning and, and you, you come home and you're revved up and you're ready to serve the king and you are inspired and you are, your worry has evaporated, the Spirit's moving in your heart. That's God doing that because you didn't remove those things. Your humility to go to church and then receive God's blessing is part of what healed and washed your mind. But when you go to a church and you're just like sitting there looking at your watch, waiting to get home to watch the football game, man, that's just sucking life out of you. It's an, an opposite spiritual economy. When we go to church, we should leave blessed right? Or maybe we don't leave right away. We just hang around because we want to just soak in the community of God and the encouragement of the saints, brothers and sisters that build each other up instead of tearing each other down. But don't be deluded. Beware of people that you have communities that just tear down. They don't want to hear the words of Jesus. You know, you got Isaac who digs wells and Philistines who steal them. Don't go to a church that steals your joy, and takes that away. Walk away. God still loves you. He's still on his throne, regardless of what communicator you go to. So, children arise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. There is a dividing line with Jesus Christ. Verse 22 Jesus just gives it to him straight, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another for assuredly I say to you, you won't have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. There's an immediate truth to this in that they're going to go out to these cities and Jesus is following behind them, right? That's the immediate situation. They're messengers announcing a king. The king's going to show up. And Jesus is going to leave where he's at in Capernaum before they finish getting to all the cities. So don't sit and dwell in a city that's not spiritually receiving the words of God don't do it. I had one young lady that was talking about a church she was going to, and they taught something that was absolutely contrary to the Word of God. I can't remember what the topic was, uh, but we just got done learning in our Bible study, like one concept. And she's like, man, I was just at church and they taught the exact opposite. And so we went to the Word of God. We looked at it and I'm like, is that, you know, is that clear? She goes, yeah, it's really clear. I think this church was teaching something that was not in line with the Word of God. Here's the advice for 23, when they persecute you in this city, when they're doing stuff for his name's sake, they're doing things contrary to the word of God, flee to another city. And I'm like, you can just walk away from spiritually dead churches, but contrary to Christ churches, you got to run. Just flee. Get out of there. Don't spend another day of your life with that kind of ministry because you're responsible for the ministries you choose to attend. There is a worth being measured and a weight being held and your discernment is being watched by God. So are you going to give to those kinds of things? This passage is also fairly prophetic and people do read this as prophetic. Um, When we want to get to the um, cities of Israel, that's immediate. But if you want to read the cities of the world and that this is part of like kind of the Great Commission, I don't think it is because later in Matthew we see the Great Commission. This isn't that missionary journey. This is different. And this one's focused on Israel, um, but there people do read this and they say, "Wow, look, people are going to persecute." It seems odd that you'd have meek, nice people, meeking people that get that that, that get hated, but that's true. In Matthew eight, Jesus had a whole city of Gergesenes send him packing. They sent packing the incarnate um, presence of God in their city. So it does happen. So Jesus gets persecuted first, and then he asks his disciples to get persecuted too. Later on, with the Great Commission. He is crucified and raised, and he's going to ask a lot of his disciples to go right to martyrdom, right? Not the whole church, but the apostles, the ones that are sent out. Uh, not the whole the people hosting these folks aren't necessarily being hated. So this is part of the body of Christ. There's people that go out and they're okay with this. I don't mind that people hate me. I'd rather be in love with my God than to have people love me for not having a God. But this is a promise. It says you will be hated constant trials. You join the battle, you jump onto the battlefield, people are going to shoot at you. That's the equation. So God doesn't say, come follow me, I'll be your buddy. He says, come follow me and people are going to hate you for it. Right? Are we okay with that? And the 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 layout that he gives is in verse 21, like this is going to split your family. If you get excited about Jesus and when you see your brother or sister and, and your biological family and you're always telling them about Jesus, there's going to be a point at which they ask you to stop it because they don't want to hear it unless they're believers too. And then they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're in the faith now. And we can talk about these things because they're blinded to it and it causes a division. So Jesus is looking forward to where there will be under Nero, there was full on persecution. If you were a Christian, they were trying to kill you and they would try to get family members to turn each other in because it's how you identify people. So endure it, uh, see through it. You're supposed to be wise. He says to get out of a city in verse 23, let's be wise as snakes and harmless as doves um, and, and just move. So the great question of ministry is always, should I stay or should I go? And the answer to that is you go whenever God tells you to and whenever you recognize the things He's told you to recognize. You stay as long as there's, there's fruit and there's ministry happening. There's more people getting killed today than there were even under Nero. So right now, about 300 Christians per day are getting killed. About 2 million uh, Christians per year are persecuted or given a different set of laws because of their lifestyle choices. Um, We we see around the world today more people getting martyred than we have in the last 2,000 years. It should say something about where we're at in God's plan. And God's promise that he's going to return not only is true for these disciples, but it's true today too. There's going to be a time when when Jesus' returns. The point here is, if you, you stick in a sti- city longer than you need to, then that next city that might welcome you doesn't get to hear from you. And the point is, the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. I don't want you to dwell too long in a place that's not hearing my words. Move on and get going in the next place. So believers kind of have to be weighing that all out, understanding that if we're serving the kingdom and repeating God's words to people on a regular basis. There, there is a witness that happens on the positive side, but there's a persecution that can happen on the negative side. It doesn't matter which one happens. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We're so excited about the healing we've been freely given that we freely give it. And the results of giving that is not our concern. We're gonna to get to the second half of this chapter next week. Jesus considers to tell his apostles in full truth what to expect and what will happen So the more chaotic the world gets, the more foundational the kingdom of God looks. And the more we see that this world's passing away and our concern should be for the world of the kingdom, our treasures should be stored up in the kingdom, not here on earth. Lord, we we follow you with our minds and our hearts, but we've counted the cost. And this scripture shows us the importance of just weighing out that cost, weighing out the price of being an apostle. And Lord, we'll take that price the exchange is fair. And thinking like Matthew, like, it's worth it. And and the worker is worthy of his pay. So Lord, we want to get to work. We want to go to, if if we're going to be despised, let it happen. If we're going to share your glory and new people are coming into the kingdom, that so far outweighs any kind of persecution, that we take that, we accept that. But Lord, we want to free ourselves from the shackles of worry and fear. And we want to obey your command to not worry and not fear what they'll do to us. We know it's happening, we're aware of it, but help us be innocent and harmless in that process. Help us to not be stupid. Lord, help us to run, to, to flee a city when it's time to flee, to flee a job when, when there's no more ministry to be done there. Lord, help us to just be wholly pure-hearted, and meek, and humble, and gracious, and peaceful. Um, Lord, help us to be your children and your messengers, that we represent your kingdom like an ambassador. We do it with boldness like Peter and, and John. And we do it, Lord, with courage because we know that, that, that we, our souls can only be rusted and decayed on earth, but in, in heaven they're eternal. And there's nothing here that lasts, but with you everything lasts. So Lord, help us to see things clearly. See the world the way you're teaching your disciples to see it, your apostles. And Lord, give us those opportunities. We want to see people come into your kingdom. In Jesus' name.